Welcome to Startup Dads, a podcast about the highs and lows of building a business and raising a family at the same time. For more information about the topics we cover on the podcast and other Startup Dads related content, you can follow us on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. I'm Amrit, co-founder of Hyper Exponential, a tech startup that I co-founded in 2017. It's grown from a two-person team working out of my kitchen to a profitable business with several large clients and more than 20 team members across London and Europe. I'm also dad to Evie, my first child, who was born last December. Welcome to this week's episode of Startup Dads. I'm absolutely delighted to have this guest on the show this week. She's got loads and loads of interesting things and insights from her journey from different sides of the table, as well as family life. So delighted to introduce Leila Zania. Leila, did I say your name right? That's the first you thing You did. I Perfect. Say. Yeah, very awesome. impressive. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, as Amrit Santhirasenan, I always try to make sure that I respect other people's names. Great. So Leila, can you talk to us a little bit about your journey as a startup mum, maybe for, for a guest to get to know you a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm now a a venture capitalist, sort of by accident, but I really think of Kindred as having just built my next business. It just happens to be that that business is Mm. a venture fund. So in that sense, I've been really fortunate to be a part of sort of multiple founding journeys. And I think probably the most important founding journey I've been on has been that of a mom um, and sort of starting starting our own family. I think like many people, actually, it's, it's sort of all happening at the same time, you know, like the culmination of where you feel like you're resourceful enough and senior enough and and all that to go out and sort of embark on your own venturing activity and starting your own company, starting your own firm just coincides at the same time, right? Where you're sort of building a family and building a life and stretching yourself financially and getting your first house and all, you know, everything sort of happens at one time. So I do think it's an incredibly intense period, but it's also been the most energizing period of my life. Certainly the period of the most learning both personally and professionally. And I think just that growth for me has been really extraordinary. So I guess kind of going back to the very early part of my career, I started out in consulting and management consulting because I just wanted a really broad base of training going into the business world. I always knew I wanted to be in business in some way, but didn't know exactly how or what. And it was only a few years into that first experience that I had the opportunity to join a startup. And it wasn't even tech. It was the sort of early team at Innocent Drinks here in the UK. And you know, there's cool. nothing high tech or, or particularly proprietary around blended fruit, right? And selling it in sort of a packaged smoothie format. But it was such a formative and an extraordinary experience for me and really taught me, I think, that small can beat big and that you could be in this sort of really flat structure. I'll never forget one of my first projects working with one of the founders who was ex-Bain himself. So that was sort of how I initially got in touch with him. It was supposed to be for a six-month secondment from Bain. And, you know, I went through this whole process of looking at reconfiguring their supply chain for growth. They'd experienced this enormous growth and they'd gone to kind of a couple of mom and pop type providers of you can blend my fruit and you can package my fruit and you could distribute that into various different retail stores. And they'd gotten sort of too big for their boots. And so he said, why don't you go out and do some research and you know, build a model and tell us how we should reconfigure that. So I, I did my very consulting-y thing and I put it together in a PowerPoint pack. It was obviously beautiful. Of Who knew if it would work or not, but it was a beautiful PowerPoint. And I I shared it with him and he was like, all right, why don't you get on the phone and let's do it. Like, let's start switching our suppliers. And I was like, whoa, don't, don't you want to have like several layers of people check the assumptions <laughs> in my model and 
And I just wasn't work, used to working in that sort of really flat, non-hierarchical system. But once I caught that bug, I just, I couldn't look back. And that was in 2007. So it's so kind of the bulk of the last 15 years I've been working in and around startups, either as a founder myself or kind of joining a really early team and trying to help make them successful. And when you said you always wanted to be in business, was that the entrepreneurship side of things or, you know, was the innocent experience formative? I think when I look at your career, there's lots of things I want to pick up on what you just talked about there. But in terms of the path to entrepreneurship, was that something at the beginning that was there? Yeah, I've always been really motivated, I think, by people at the end of the day and going where I thought the most inspiring people were. So like all of my experiences, you know, even Bain there was like a single individual that I met that said, you know, you might want to look at this thing called management consulting, which I didn't, I thought I was going to go into the very creative field of investment banking, um, graduating from, <laughs> from university. And then I was like, oh, that's quite interesting. But I was very much led by that sort of single individual saying, this is a pretty extraordinary first role and will give you really broad exposure. And then even as I was looking at the three kind of bulge bracket consulting firms, you know, it kind of felt like they were three versions of the same thing, you know, looking at McKinsey, Bain and BCG at the time. And I chose Bain because I felt like, you know, the people just really stood out to me as being kind of the work hard, play hard type of culture and, you know, quite diverse in their backgrounds, like there wasn't an archetypal type of person. And and so I think I've I've always sort of been led by people, you know, John Wright from from Innocent was the one who kind of was really inspiring for me to join that journey. And then almost every founding journey thereafter for me was just this serendipitous moment where I met an extraordinary human being and, you know, was really captured and captivated by their vision and decided that I wanted to spend the next X number of years and X thousands of hours just trying to help make them successful. It's clear to me that you engaged with those kind of magic founders who can do that or the entrepreneurs or people who can do that, right? Critical parts of the growth journey of anyone, irrespective of whether they work in startups or not. Yeah, I think that is for me today, in a sense, it's my first founding experience. I mean, I, I was a co-founder of my previous business, but it, it sort of existed. And then I joined a single individual and, and we went off to the races. And I've always been the number two in an organization where I felt like my role was to make that individual or that group of individuals successful, but but sort of less about how do I put my own stamp and my own values. And, and, and I think Kindred for me has been such an extraordinary experience in the sense that it's shown me firsthand what the greatest privilege of being a founder is. And I think that privilege is you get to construct the world around you, you know, that world that you want to live in in every way, right? The macro and the micro. So who do I want to work with? Who do I want to be my partners? Who do I want to invest in? You know, what kind of office environment do I want to be in? What kind of value system? What kind of economic model? Like you literally craft that world. And for us at Kindred, and I'm sure we'll get to talk about it, but we've tried to innovate on the business model. We've tried to make it a much more generous way of investing a more collaborative sort of if we win, we win together type of concept. And that for me is the version of the world that I want to live in. And so I think that is the privilege of founding any journey is that you get to sort of build that into the fundamental fabric of your everyday. And at the end of the day, it's it's your life, right? That's that's what you're doing sort of 12 plus hours a day every day. Yeah, you're so right there. And I, I, you're absolutely right. I'm really keen, you know, already just talking to you, I can see the ingredients of how Kindred's formed. And I'd love to pick up a little bit on that in a minute. But one thing that just came to my mind, because you just touched on something that's really close to my heart. So HX, the business that I set up, we're 30 people at the moment, and we're probably going to be 50 or 60 in the next six or seven months. And I know that's small business by most people's standards. But 
that's just gigantic growth to me. You know, I remember talking to my co-founder and, you know, we thought that's the size HX would be when we sold it, right? If and when we sold it. And something you just touched on there about the greatest joy as a founder is nothing to do with money. It's nothing to do with glory or any of those things. And, you know, for lots of people who are fortunate enough to be successful, the money kind of stops being an issue at some point. But it feels to me like, you know, the greatest joy is exactly that, to be able to craft, you know, to build the dream business that you get to work in every day and to surround yourself with people. But, you know, Leila, something that I've been, I'm at the moment going, wow, I need to really try and codify this culture, mm-hmm. right? We're about to add the same number of people who've worked in HX for its entire existence in the next six months. How do you feel about managing that cultural growth and how you imbue the values yeah. in your business as your business becomes more successful? Yeah, it's it's a, an amazing question because we not only have to do that for ourselves, but then we have to try and work with our founders to embed yeah. that in their organizations, right? And I think, you know, it's also an interesting question from a partnership perspective because our partnership won't grow hugely, right? Like we're right now five general partners. When we started Kindred five years ago, it was four general partners. I think we'll always be somewhere around four or five general partners practicing the craft, but I think in terms of the impact and and number of people who you interact with, you know, we'll meet with maybe 800 to 1000 founders and companies every year. And, and so I think actually, you do have a profound impact, you know, every time you have a conversation with a customer, you sort of leave them with a feeling of who you are and what your value system is. And I think the unique thing about being in a venture capital partnership versus in a company is that you are, in my case, we're five co-CEOs. Right. So we're an equal partnership and it's not like sort of a pyramid structure where somebody is setting that and then it gets kind of delineated and and cascaded down the organization. So the thing that we've done that I think is table stakes, which everybody needs to do, is your point about codifying what that culture is and actually putting it in terms where it's clear where there's actually something may come into conflict, you know, Mm. how you're going to make that decision. So when when those things are tested, I think, is when you actually see what a company's value proposition and sort of set of values are. Mm. And so I think the codification practice is really important. And then it's about in a company context, will your employees be talking about those things when you're not in the room? Like, is that just a way that things are practiced day to day? You know, is it embedded in your hiring structure and, and practice, et cetera? I think one thing we do, though, which I'm really proud of, and we always get value from every quarter when we do it. It's essentially this idea that, you know, as I said, we'll maybe meet with 800 companies face to face or zoom to zoom these days every year, and we'll make maybe eight investments out of it. And so that leaves an inordinate number of companies, you know, 792 founders or founding teams are out there talking about their experience of Kindred, but not being a customer of Kindred, right? So everybody works really hard for their portfolio, of course. Um, You know, you've got all the incentives in the world to make them successful, Mm -hmm. but I think the way you show up in those meetings where you end up saying no is so important. And we always say, you know, your returns will be made on the times where you say yes, but your reputation is made on the times you say no. And it's just like the viral coefficient, the magnitude, the volume of those people are so much more than those that you actually get to work with. And so one of the ways in which we measure that is, and it's on an individual attribution basis. So, you know, my numbers will be different than my partner Chris's numbers, than my partner Maria's numbers. But once a quarter, an email goes out to every founder that we've said no to. And we ask them a set of questions, you know, at at its basic level, it's an NPS score. And would they recommend us to a friend? And then we ask for free text. And then we sort of go away every single quarter. And we look at that as a partnership. And we'll look at our aggregate number. We'll look at the trend analysis. We'll look at how it's showing up on a per partner basis. And I do believe that you can't move what you can't measure. And so the idea that every conversation I know I'm going into, no matter if I've had a sleepless night or a bad morning, 
like I'm going to be measured on the basis of that conversation. And that's a conversation with a customer or a potential customer who's going to go and talk to others. I think that's been a really important rigor for us. So yeah, build it into your your culture, codify it, but also measure it and, and yeah. find sort of tangible, innovative ways of doing that. That's a fantastic measure. And it's a courageous, courageous and regulating measure, right? Because it actually incentivizes you in the right way. It, it does two things. A, you measure it and therefore you can improve it. But also it has what do they think it's a reflexive thing. As soon as you put it in, it actually incentivizes you to do the right thing kind of before the fact. Absolutely. I mean, I always find myself every quarter, like covering my eyes and sort of squinting between, you know, my fingers to see what it is. Because at the end of the day, it is people coming in and sort of pouring their, you know, life's work, their vision for Mm. something they're incredibly passionate about. And it's you're ultimately saying kind of you don't believe um, in, in one way, shape or form. But I think if you can do that in a way where you've got high integrity, and you're genuinely trying to be helpful instead of giving the gift of feedback. And, you know, we've had a big debate, not just in the firm, but with other VCs about, I'm sure you've received this if you've done fundraising, and you'll frequently get emails rejecting you, which by the way, I had many times as I was pitching for my own business, where it's like, you know, it's just not a fit. And you're like, so I just don't know what that means. You know, and, yeah. and by the way, this could be after firms have taken sort of many meetings, you know, over many weeks. And so we've vowed to give more tangible proactive feedback about like, listen, this, these were the things we struggled with, or maybe this is how we would think about it if we were in your shoes. And then caveat all of that by saying, this is not prescription by any means. This is just sort of one person's view. And by the way, venture capital, along with weather forecasting is like the only job you can get wrong more than you get right and keep your job. So kind of (laughs) also the humility of saying like, we, we get it wrong all the time, but it does invite a lot of back and forth and time is the most crucial and and scarce asset. And so the debate across VCs is like, you don't want to put that out there because it's inevitably going to be a back and forth where the founder says, oh no, well, that's not actually a risk to worry about. Like, let me try at it again and kind of give you the pitch from a different angle, et cetera. But I think, again, just from the perspective of doing the right thing and having integrity in how you do it, I think that's probably the greatest gift that you could give a founder is just more specificity around your own thought process. Yeah. And yeah, speaking as a founder, I couldn't agree more. That's all you really want is the opportunity to improve and go again, irrespective of whether it's saying yes or no to a sale or to an investment round or to a, a hire. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. Amazing. Well, I'm really keen to get on. I think that's a really nice segue into the values and motivation and kind of the raison d'etre for Kindred and its business model, because you've got a really unique structure. And when I first read about it, I thought, wow, again, skin in the game. I think what you're talking about here, it just really sticks out about Kindred. So could you talk to us a little bit about that, how it works? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think fundamentally it's about being in this value creation business. I mean, that's always the way I think about it is that this is not a zero sum game. There's nothing there. And then, you know, a a couple of founders come together and they put, you know, a ton of their energy and effort and resource and some venture capital comes in and they hire more people and they literally build value where there was no value before. And so the concept that you can take that value, you can take that pie and you can divide that pie up across more people to me is just a really exciting concept. And I think to your point about where it comes from, 
I think if you've ever been a founder, you've ever been on the sort of operating side of the table, you always take that view, right? A smaller piece of a bigger pie. I mean, it just, if you pitched your business to VCs and said like, it's my company, I own hundred percent of it and I'm never going to yeah. sell any of it to VCs. I'm not going to have an option pool. You know, people would say, great, you're going to own hundred percent of something very small. Yeah. And I think no one's kind of applied that to the fund side before, which I think mm. is really curious and interesting or was really, really interesting to us. I'm saying actually, if we could take our profit, basically the carry of the fund, which is just made up of the underlying performance of all our portfolio companies, and we could share that, let's give that to all the founders that we invest in and give them skin in the game, to your point. The idea from a business perspective is smaller piece of a bigger pie. You know, if that, if that gives you even 1% of an additional probability or additional chance of you know, getting into that next great deal, meeting that next founder, you know, being able to win in a highly competitive situation it will pay for itself in troves. But actually, you know, back to the point about the privilege of starting a company, I think it's just the version of the world we want to live in. And mm. if you've been a founder before, I think you recognize just like the sacrifice, quite frankly, of like what it takes to be really excellent at that. And you put 100% of your energy, your resource, your blood, sweat and tears, your earning potential, you know, your reputation into one thing. And you just look at statistics and even Sequoia, one of the best venture capital firms on the face of the planet has a 35 to 40% write-off ratio, right? Like they are no dummies. They're investing in phenomenal talent. And yet like those are just the risks of the game. And so I think for us having been in those shoes before and then coming onto this side of the table, it's like, how do we earn the right to sit at the table with people like you who are expending that kind of effort and, and, and making those sacrifices? And then how do we pass on some of the benefits, right, of having a portfolio and, you know, being around other phenomenal individuals and companies who are building value? And from a business perspective, it's, it's not just the economics that you get. It's this like feeling of a vested interest in each other's success. It's this feeling of being a part of a community and if we can make it a bit less lonely and a bit more collaborative and underlie that with an economic interest, then it would be something that we're really proud to do. Yeah, I think it's amazing. And I think, yeah, I wish I'd heard about it before we closed our A. Um, <laughs> and again, just it's proof, right? If you're doing that, it's money where your mouth is, or quite literally. Absolutely. Well, you must feel that a lot as well, is that founders are so sold to these days. Like everyone says the same thing. And how are you supposed to discern you know, what's reality versus what's narrative. I don't think you'll meet a VC that says like, we just give you some money and walk away and hope for the best. You know, everyone's <laughs> like, we had value, we're service oriented, we're founder friendly. And I think the, pe the person you're going to trust the most from a recommendation perspective is another founder because oh, they're the customers, right? Like they've had that firsthand experience. And so I do think if you want to stand out, you've got to actually do something different, not just say you do things differently and then rely on that set of customers to be your greatest evangelizers. You're bang on. And I think, again, you touched on something which I think is so important. And I've learned this as a founder as well, is that in the world that we live in and, you know, people talk about the power law distribution of returns, portfolio aggregation, all of that on the investment side, is that you're absolutely right. You are sold to. And actually, you know, I've talked to some of the biggest funds in the world and they talk about brand and they talk about value add. And actually, it's really hard for me as a founder. I'm like, I want to see the really tangible evidence right? That really matters to me. We're fortunate. We've got a profitable, very fast growing business and we want to be selective over the people. You know, what do they say? You're going to, you know, there's marriage, marriage, and then, you know, there's things that are hard to reverse. And then there's things that are harder to reverse than marriage, which is bringing an investor onto your cap table. Exactly. We always say that, right? Like it's, you know, you, you can get a divorce, but, uh, yeah. but it's very difficult to do that with investors. So agreed. 
So, so I think that you're amazing to talk a little bit about Kindred's business model and a really nice segue onto the family side of things, particularly with respect to what you were saying about leaving the world a better place and where the world you want to make. So with that in mind, I'd love to ask you about Kindred's parental leave scheme. Yeah, I'm really proud of this. It's something actually relatively recent. When we were first setting up the firm, you know, it was two women and, and two men. And I was actually six weeks pregnant when we kind of first really launched on, uh, you know, I didn't even know I was pregnant as we were first putting together the the very beginnings of it. And I knew that I really wanted a family. I just didn't quite know when it was going to happen. You know, it was something that clearly was in the very foundation of the firm, but not something that to, to the point you were making earlier that we had codified, right? And then it, it got to the point where, you know, we, we were just a handful of people at first. And then we started to hire people even outside of the investment team. And so we started to have this conversation around how do we create this codification of the values when it comes to kind of building firms and building families. One of the big aha moments there was like, it actually isn't about being a woman versus being a man, right? Like this is about being a person and, you know, being a person who has responsibilities outside of the workplace. And so I think one thing that we did that I'm really proud of is is kind of make it a much broader, you know, a lot of people have maternity policies, you know, we have a a parental policy. And and we've also, I think, made it really clear that this, you know, not only applies to mothers and fathers equally, but also different types of biological or adoptive children, you know, same sex, there's there's so many Mm -hmm. different, I think, questions around the shape of of a family and what that looks like, and how do you um, create space for for difference. And so, yeah, I think that the thinking behind it was, this is a marathon, it's not a sprint, we operate in the kind of standard partnership type of model where they're 10 year commitments, essentially, every time we raise a fund um, that does last longer than some marriages. So I think you you really want to set up your infrastructure for that marathon, not a sprint. And then I think the other thing was, you know, I'm often asked as a woman in an industry that's very male dominated of like how we can try and get more diversity in technology and mm-hmm. more diversity in kind of investment roles and senior investment roles. And I think that kind of concept of equity of applying this both to men and women and you know various different family structures is is really important to enabling that to happen right if i'm up for a really senior role in a, in an organization and i'm of childbearing age and i'm a woman like is that going to be something that they think of differently being a woman than than being a man and i think if we could just make this about parental leave as opposed to maternity versus paternity that really helps sort of normalize and equal the playing field so we've set it up as an 18 month program and we call it a program because i think this concept of like leave and then return is quite jarring at least you know i would have found that quite jarring mm-hmm. And so it essentially is structured in sort of a tiered manner where there's a number of months that you have completely off and completely full pay. About half the year is that, you know, you're welcome to be completely off and then you you get most of your pay. And then for that six months where you're kind of coming back after a year of being out, it's this like ramp up program. And, you know, you have the ability to work throughout that period of time or for only some portion of that time, it's completely discretionary but where you work four days a week while kind of maintaining your 100% compensation. And so, you know, we're not asking people to make a choice around like, I'm going to earn less and I'm going to work less. Like this is about kind of the loyalty, I think, that you're breeding with people for being a part of this journey for the long haul and also just enabling them to be really fulfilled individuals and hopefully sort of bring that energy into the workplace as and when they, they come back in. That's fantastic. It's such a great idea. And I think you touched on something there about, you know, most professionals, whatever they do, they don't want to be necessarily completely off, right? But what they want to do is have the flexibility to work out actually how to make it work. 
Because as yeah. a parent, one of the things I realized is, you know, that I set up a startup and I realized that I had to learn what I could control and what I couldn't control. Mm. And then I had a child. I was like, okay, now I know what I cannot control. Right? That's <laughs> exactly. the only thing I'm absolutely sure about. And, you know, I'm a founder and a dad now and I have to work out how to balance these things. And the ability, the buffer, I think that you're talking about, that that's the bit that I think is the, the most special bit, I think, of what you're doing. And I, and I think, you know, everyone will have so many opinions. And that, I think that's what's so interesting. I've had three times that I've been managing this process of like, all right, yeah. and you know, am I going to be out for how long am I going to be out? How am I going to, in the early days, like I really felt like, you know, this was one of my babies. It still is one of my babies. 100%. And, you know, I was building this firm alongside building my family. And so I didn't switch off. And to your point, you know, it's very much my choice. We didn't even have a policy at that point. We were just kind of, kind of doing everything all the time. And then for my third, like we kind of know it's our last child. It was a huge debate internally about whether or not, not internally in the firm, I should say, but internally in my, in my relationship <laughs> yeah. about whether or not we go for the third. My husband said I can, we can have a fourth, but it will have to be with my next husband. So, <laughs> you know, we're stopping at three and, um, and, and my partners knew that. And so they really encouraged me to kind of take an actual maternity leave, which is not something that I'd done in the kind of traditional sense um, for my first two children. And and I worked with our business coach, like our, our work therapist. And I was talking to him about this, this discussion that we were having in the firm. And I said, you know, on one hand, I feel like they're being really generous. But on the other hand, it just doesn't sit well with me. Like, it's not something that I feel like I want to do. And I'm not sure if that's me not relinquishing control or if that's what's going on there. And we kind of dissected it together. And, and his line, which I now say to any other expecting parent who's sort of wondering how to navigate this is like, his point was like, listen, you've got to find your own peace, whatever your own peace will be. And so for me, and the idea that a board meeting would be happening, and I would know that that board meeting is happening, but I'm not in that meeting. And one of my other partners is covering that things are being talked about. And, you know, maybe there's a crisis that needs to be dealt with, or maybe there's something really exciting. It would actually give me more anxiety not to be in that meeting than to yeah. be in that meeting and spend those few hours really engaged in that meeting, but say, actually, I'm not going to be doing any new company meetings. I'm not making any new investments. Or so the, yeah. I, I had to delineate, these are the things that I will be doing. And actually, these are the things that I won't be doing because I'm going to be with my family. But I think find your own peace and don't listen so much to the prescription of others that there is a way to do this. There really isn't. No, that point you touched on there, I think people don't talk about enough because I think we've got to a stage which is really fantastic where, and it often is the case that things overcorrect a little bit before they they settle on something, a sensible equilibrium, but we're much more confident to talk about how family should come first. Mm. Can I ask you a follow-up question there? Because I think for me, understanding how our investors were going to engage with us and, and relate to me as a first-time dad and first-time founder how do you work with your portfolio to set expectations and, you know, give them the comfort that actually, you know yeah. what, there are going to be things in their lives that they need to balance with their work? Yeah, I have so many thoughts on this. I've had a number of people, both founders, but also other VCs, other partners in funds um, who have reached out recently saying like, I'm trying to figure out how to talk to my investors. So the, for the founder, it's the VC investor. For the VC investor, it's the LP LPs, yeah. of saying like, you know, how do I make sure that they know that I'm not going to take my eye off the ball and they feel comforted and I have a plan. And, um, and I found myself really conflicted, like after those meetings, like feeling actually really, really bad after those meetings. And I was thinking about it recently, like, why is it that they had that effect on me? And I think it's important to talk about it in the sense that, we wouldn't want anyone to feel that this is like a taboo subject or a place that they can't go. But equally, 
I invested in my founders and our LPs invested in us for one reason, which is they trust your judgment. Your job as a CEO, your job as a venture partner is to have perspective and judgment. And if you don't have that, like I've made a bad investment and my LPs have made a bad investment. And so like, I kind of back you, I trust you to do it in your way. And I think what didn't sit well with me was this like laundry list of specificity of saying like, here's how I've mitigated every potential (laughs) risk. And here are all the things that could go wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally there was someone talking to me about the potential for postnatal depression. And I was like, you haven't even had the baby yet. You know, you don't, you have no idea. And your point about control or lack of control really resonated with me, you know, not just in having children, but you know, we've got aging parents, we've got, you know, everyone Mm. has friends who have, you know, challenges that are unforeseen. Um, and in our case, you know, our first child was born with a really rare disease and we had absolutely no idea that that was going to be the case. And neither my husband nor I are carriers of the condition and all that. So, you know, you are kind of rolling the dice every time you walk out the door. And I think what your investors who have put their money and, you know, voted with their dollars in you as an organization or as a firm, they back your ability to navigate like an ever-changing landscape and obstacles that get thrown in your way and challenges and opportunities. And, and so I think just saying like, this is a really exciting thing that's happening in my life. And, you know, we've sorted it out and we have a plan and, you know, let me know if you need any more information is kind of like, that's what I would go with because it's almost, you know, you can doth protest too much uh, by like spelling out, you know, every nook and cranny of what you think the situation will be like in the future. Yeah. And when you frame it like that, actually, it's really interesting. I wouldn't tell my investors, you know, there's a small chance that I'm going to get injured. Uh, I'm going to break my wrist and actually I need a framework to mitigate that. Or actually, yeah, there's a small chance that someone else, you know, there's a whole taxonomy of challenges, unexpected challenges, which is literally, as you say, the number one job of the CEO is to weather the unexpected challenges. And it's, it's one of them, right? Um, and exactly. it's, a, it's a blessing, you know, a challenge in the form of a blessing in many ways. Well, completely. I think that's the other thing is that like, this is such a joyous moment. You know, it's such an incredible thing. And by and large, for the most part, it's something that people are doing because they really want to do it. Like they're doing it knowingly and consciously, and it's going to be additive to their lives. And so, yeah, I think being great at work and in business is in part about being a really fulfilled human being, right? I mean, you're bringing your whole person, your whole self into the office. And and I've, I don't think I've seen a single situation where there's like a sustainable or transferable example of someone who is consistently unhappy professionally, but a great partner and father or mother or vice versa, who's really unhappy in their home life, but like kind of brings their best self into work every day. It just, it doesn't happen that way. So I think we need to enable people to kind of live the lives that are going to be most fulfilling to them knowing that there is a benefit, you know, to both sides in being able to do that. Yeah, I remember a really great, something that Jeff Bezos said that really resonated with me, which is how he doesn't like the phrase work-life balance, which implies that one tips Mm. the other one. It's actually how they fit together because he says that, you know, when I am have things are going great at home, I'm more energized and better to uh, able to do my job. And when things are going well at my job, I come home and I'm a better, more excited, better version of myself for my kids. Because I often think about that for Eva because, you know, my daughter 
I worked very hard, like all founders, like, like lots of people in the world do. And, you know, there's probably a correlation. I'm a mathematician as well, so it's probably a correlation between found, how much of a founder you are and how hard you work. And people go, well, you know, how, what, what? And I get asked by friends, they say, well, what about the example you're setting to your kids? My daughter has been working in the office since she was three weeks old and she was four <laughs> weeks early, right? So when she was uh-huh. minus one week old, she was sitting yeah. next to me in the office. And I say, well, actually, I want her to see me do this because I'm trying to lay my little stone, right? Some people walk on the path and some people lay the stones and I'm trying to do this and I want him, I want her to see me do this, yeah. right? I, I don't want to be apart from her, but there are ways I can make this work and I want to be an inspiration to her. And that for me, a huge part of my work is me, right? And for yeah. me, that's how I can project that to her. That really resonates. But I, I also think, and I'm very bad at this, by the way, so I'm being, you know, very hypocritical, sort of giving <laughs> giving this advice. If any of my partners listen to this, they would literally be like laughing me out of the room right now. But sometimes the best advice is the hardest to take. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think there's this transition that you go through in your life from a professional perspective in becoming more senior, either gestation of experience or you know, maybe you're a startup founder and you're a CEO at the age of 23, right? But it's just at whatever age, when you become at that senior level, it becomes not that it's not about hard work, but it's like the brute force mechanism that was a really powerful tool to get you to that point. It shouldn't be the only tool in your arsenal. And actually just back to the point about why people backed you and they backed you for your judgment and your perspective. It's really difficult to have sound judgment and perspective when you're a hamster on a wheel that's running 24 hours a day. And I think kids, for me at least, have been a really powerful forcing function. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting one that I've learned as HX has grown. At the transition from and the difference between just being a founder and being a CEO of a business, (laughs) you know, with a team far bigger than I ever thought, is actually... It was always going to get to the case where if there are 168 hours in a week, that's an upper limit to how much actually you can use pure hard work to scale your output. And actually, your praise about kids being a forcing function, it's a skill that I knew I was going to have to learn anyway. It's a nice way to have to learn it. Yeah. And I think on that concept of, you know, their time is one of those zero sum things, right? Or at least Mm. the, the perception is that it's zero sum. Um, there's 24 hours in a day, so the saying goes. And I think that's true on one hand. I mean, obviously, factually, it's true. But I think there is a way of trying to get at like a 25-hour day, at least from the sort of energy perspective, the way mm-hmm. of being able to sort of maximize every hour and what you do. And my partner in the firm, he has a concept that I just love, and I'm, I've stolen from him and I'm parading it like it's my own, which is this concept of something being generative. And that word generative, I think, is such a good word to encapsulate. Sometimes you go into a meeting with someone and you put a lot of your, you know, your brain power, your energy, your physical, mental, emotional energy. And somehow you come out of that hour, that 90 minutes, and you feel more energized than when you first went in, right? Something was generated there. Something was created there. And it was something about the impact of those brains, that collective effervescence of being together with other people working towards a common goal. But conversely, you'll sometimes go into a meeting and you'll give like very little of yourself, but it is just, my God, are those meetings draining sometimes, right? And you just don't have the will to live. And so I think it's about actually measuring again, like being really thoughtful and mindful about like the types of people, the types of environments, the types of conversations, the types of functions that are really generative to you. And then trying to put as much of that sort of generative type of behavior, whether it's at home with your kids or whether it's in the office and kind of generate more energy than you actually put in in the end. Yeah. 
That's awesome. This is one of my favorite bits about doing startup dances. I get to talk to awesome founders, VCs, and get basically coaching for free. So that's awesome. That's going on. My, <laughs> well, that's unqualified, going... <laughs> very, very unqualified. Not coaching. at all. That's going on my list. Uh, Leila, I want to ask you now my favorite question, which is what's the lesson that you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your kids? Yeah. Um, you know, you kind of touched on it earlier yourself, um, and it sort of comes back to this concept of control. It's a little bit of a nuanced one. So I think for me, the lesson and what I want to pass on is is around the concept of agency, right? It's the fact that we as human beings, we can't change the circumstances of the events that happen to us in life per se. You know, no one could have predicted or, or prevented even the pandemic. But but what we can do is change our reaction to them. We can feel like we have the agency to change things, to adapt things, to build things. Um, and it's that Steve Jobs line where he says everything around you that you call life is just made up by people that were no smarter than you, right? You can change it. You can influence it. You can build your own things that other people can use. And I think that's just such an empowering concept. And I, I really feel like having that sense of agency in the world is critical to my own happiness and motivation. But equally, I think linking it to parenthood, I think it's the sort of quite painful realization that there actually are many, many things that are outside of our control. And so the kind of phrase that summarizes, you know, all of that together is, in my mind, is the serenity prayer, right? And I'm not even a religious person, but I think keep finding ways of trying to convey this point. And it's mm. all encapsulated in quite a few words of, of the serenity prayer, which is yes. just grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And at the end of the day, I think that's what I want for my kids. That's awesome. It's such strong themes of the Stoic philosophy that you hear a lot when you talk to very successful entrepreneurs and founders. And, you know, there's nothing like the founder roller coaster or the kind of on either side of the table just to teach you to try and be a little bit more balanced. Because if you elect to pick on all the things that could stress you out every day, you know what? That's the wrong optimization to make. Completely. Um, uh, can we close up with our regular feature, Startup Shoutouts, which is where we shine a light on some of the organizations in the startup world that we uh, admire? Startup shout out. So Layla, who's your startup shout out? So my startup shout out, um, a founder that I really admire and just love working with is a guy named James Field, who's building a business called Lab Genius. For one thing, they're building this company at the intersection of biology and computation. It's a theme that I think will not only create great value in the economic sense, but I, I really think it will revolutionize the world of healthcare. It will enable sort of the treatment of really intractable diseases worldwide and create just better and healthier lives for people around the globe. So I, I think that mission is so powerful. And then with James specifically, like I've you know, had the privilege of backing him for the last four years. And I first met him when he just spun out from his PhD and started a business. So it was his first time in a company, let alone running a company or founding and, and building a business. And just watching that learning curve that he's been on while building a family at the same time. Um, and I think that's just been so inspiring to see the dedication that he's had as a father and how that's really fueled you know, his passion for being a human being and, and, and being someone who's, who's leading this game-changing organization um, and also building this really phenomenal company at the same time. So he's an inspiration and I'm really proud to get to work with him. 
That's super cool. He sounds like a potential startup dad guest. Amazing. Well, Leila, look, that was just fantastic. So many insights there. Thank you very much for my impromptu coaching session. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Leila, that's been an absolutely fantastic episode, uplifting and really, really interesting. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at Startup Dad's Pod. 